Welcome, this is Brad Westwood, and you're listening to the podcast, Speak Your Peace. This is the second show in our second season, and we've been interviewing Dr. Liesl Carr Childers, and we've been talking about public lands, and we've been focusing on her article in the Utah Historical Quarterly, and the title of that is Understanding Clive and Bundy, Using Narrative, Geographic, and Visual Empathy in Public Land History. Welcome back, Liesl. Thanks, Brad. So you were talking, uh, as we left off in our first half, about um, Clive and Bundy. I, I want to stop for a moment and talk a little bit about some of these other people whom you talk about in this article. Uh, Gratian, tell us about him and his life and his, his story as a rancher. So Gracie Muhaldi and I... Uh, unlike the Dan sisters and Clive and Bundy, um, actually spent um, some time together. He was the one rancher of these three that I actually met in person. And this is, this is not uncommon for historians, um, even those of us who call ourselves oral historians. Um, we like to talk to live people, uh, those of us who practice oral history, but sometimes that's just not possible. Um, so then we go to documentary records and try to puzzle out the story from there. I met Gracian in 2006 um, as part of the Nevada Test Site Oral History Project, and that was also part of my dissertation work at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And I found him to be just the most interesting, charming person I'd met in a long time. I actually got to go out there uh, to his ranch um, in central Nevada and interview him because nobody else wanted to. Um, my mentor, Mary Polevsky, Dr. Mary Polevsky, who uh, was the director of the Nevada Test Site Oral History Project, um, she had wanted to talk to ranchers specifically about the impact of nuclear testing on their lives throughout the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, but none of the grad students that she'd worked with um, to that point really had much of an interest in doing that. I can't tell you why I was interested. I just think I liked the idea of taking my Ford Explorer out to the middle of nowhere <laughs> and whomping it around on some dirt roads. That was very appealing. Um, but it took me a few tries to get a hold of Gracie because he's very busy and, you know, he raises sheep and cattle. Um, and sometimes livestock doesn't cooperate with your time schedule. Um, so we had a few missed opportunities. But when I finally was able to interview him, um, it was a beautiful interview. And I think that he helped stitch some ideas together that fundamentally undergirded my research in the size of the risk, um, my first book, that it couldn't have happened any other way. Um, he spoke very frankly and honestly about um, the impact that nuclear testing had on his life, but he also spoke about uh, the problem with the controversy with wild horses in Nevada. He spoke about uh, outdoor recreation and some of the difficulties that he had um, with the BLM over time. But Uhaldi's position isn't antagonistic in the same way that um, Clive and Bundy's has been towards the BLM. Um, he's actually been more involved in, in pushing for better decisions. He tries to work with the agency as much as possible. Um, and he's tried to work with several government agencies. Uh, it's actually shocking how many different government agencies are present um, in the Great Basin. Uh, it's more than, than you and I have to deal with on a regular mm -hmm. basis. Well, and so, his story is a, it's a long generational story on this landscape. 
yes, and interestingly, um, that was the common thread that all three families had, the Uhaldis, the Dans, and um, the Bundys. All three have multiple generations present on the land. Um, and, but it kind of depends on how you see those generations. Um, Gracian's family had homesteaded in the area, but not exactly where I met him. Where I met him at Cherry Creek, I'm sorry, where I met him at his ranch in uh, Garden Valley or just outside of Garden Valley, um, was not the original ranch at Cherry Creek. It was an expansion. We can kind of think of Bundy's ranch that way in Bunkerville, too. Um, the Bundy family had emerged on the Arizona Strip, and the family, the branch of the family that ended up in Bunkerville is sort of like an extension of that. And the Dan sisters, their property is their indigenous homeland, but that specific piece of property um, was not necessarily theirs in terms of multiple generations in the same way. It's basically two. So it depends on how you look at it. Right. Well, there, uh, was it the, um, the Paiute Indian, uh, uh, what Native Western American? Western Shoshone. Shoshone. Western Shoshone. Sorry, thank you mm-hmm. for that correction. But the idea for Carrie Dan was that their people had used this as hunting and grounds for living and interacting for generations in the past, even though they didn't necessarily legally. Um, I, I mean, the story is relates to their Native American past more so than their legal ownership past. Is that? That's correct. And, and that's a very important distinction um, to make. And one of the reasons why I included the Dan sisters in this article, the position of indigenous people in their homeland is something that's been fractured because of actions taken by white settlers and the federal government. And to, to detach them from their homeland and pretend that somehow because they didn't own a certain piece of real estate with a deed, like we do now, um, is to do their position a disservice. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the reasons why it was important that in the discussion with Carrie Dan, um, I use a photograph that was specifically designed to reference the idea of home. So the real estate, that was a real estate photograph of Crescent Valley as opposed to uh, a Bob Wick photograph. Mm-hmm. And that real estate photograph was, was designed, is designed, still there as far as I know, to advertise uh, a piece of real estate that somebody could buy and then build a home on. Think a well, bring out utilities, build a home. Um, I referenced that the view just sort of spoke to a deck that you could build. You could overlook this, the beautiful Cortez Mountains. But that advertisement for that single piece of real estate completely denied and hid the fact that that is Nui Segovia. It is Western Shoshone territory. It is the homeland of the Dan sisters and all their relatives. Mm-hmm. And to not see that and to not remember that um, is, is something that we need to, we need to do better with mm-hmm. that. We all do. Um, and it's, that's not to suggest that we need to take every piece of real estate that we have now and give it back to indigenous people. But the beginning of the reconciliation process with regards to identifying these places as indigenous homelands is to at least say it out loud and then 
try to do better with the physicality of it. So Gracian, his background um, uh, begins in in Europe, in Spain, and isn't he? Um, I can't think. I can't tell you the, the his heritage. Um, he's Bass. He's Bass. That's right. He's Bass. That in itself was, I thought, interesting. Uh, uh, just culturally, they're very involved in uh, uh, herds and uh, sheep herding industry and so on, uh, and have been such a part of Western uh, or Eastern Nevada and Utah and Idaho. Um, I, I think that that is an interesting part of uh, Gracian's story as well. Um, it, it, he was involved in helping the uh, BLM and the federal government put together uh, some means of preserving the land. Could you describe that? Yeah. So um, Gracian made a different decision um, than either the Dan sisters or Clive and Bundy. And I don't know that the Dan sisters or Bundy had the same kinds of choices that Gracian had. But when I interviewed him in 2006, one of his great concerns was the longevity of his ranching operation. And those ranching operations, ranching operations in general are often predicated on the interests of multiple generations participating as well as economic viability. Um, it, there are many reasons why ranches don't continue. But one of the ways that Gracian found to continue his operation was to do so by being written into the Declaration of a National Monument. Uh, federal land management law allows for some flex to include ranches and historic uses. Um, we see this almost not at all in parks, although there was a time when Great Basin National Park which is not so very far away from Gracian's ranch, included uh, grazing as well. Mm -hmm. Wilderness areas um, have a grazing allowance, and it's conceivable that national monuments would consider um, Gracian's ranch and ranching as an activity, a historic use. Historical long-term use. Yeah, and would give consideration for that, at least for as long as the ranch um, was was maintained. And that's embedded in the documentation, isn't it, this whole Yes, and I think that's an important acknowledgement um, and, a, and a smart move on Grace and New Halby's part um, to have this recognized. But the degree to which that recognition is maintained over time, you know, that, that can change. It's not a guarantee. Mm-hmm. And in fact, um, the custom has been in many, many places to close ranching uh, because backpackers, um, backcountry users in general don't really want to see cattle well, it's in that, these places. It's another thing we Americans or many suffer from is this idea of believing that there's this absolute complete wilderness and not acknowledging the human interaction on the landscape. Now, believe me, I want to see personally much more wilderness. I appreciate wilderness, but I also know as a historian that inescapably we've been interacting on the landscape for a long time. And that is part of the historical record and great. Yeah. And, and that, uh, this, this idea of ranching being part of a, 
part of a um, historical designation, it's, I think, a very useful, appropriate thing, not just, you know, expunging or removing every vestige of human activity from a landscape. Now, that's a personal view, not necessarily, I don't know if that's yours, Liesl, but I appreciate the fact that you described uh, these issues associated with public lands um, because the, the story, these stories of these three ranchers plays out very wonderfully in this Utah Historical Quarterly article. Uh, would you tell us, the, uh, so for our listeners that may not know entirely Clive and Bundy's story, will you describe his family history, the water rights, the grazing history, how all this came to be that uh, we hear on the news and have in the past three or four years related to Mr. Bundy? It's, it's very similar to uh, Grace Newhaldy's story, where, and, and maybe this is best prefaced by saying that it it's important to not think of these geographies, these physical spaces as disconnected or even separate. Um, one of the most important aspects of geographic empathy is really seeing the geography, the way the person that you're studying or the person you're wanting to understand sees the geography. So we might, we might see, uh, so if we take Ely, the town of Ely in Nevada, and put that at the center of the Great Basin, as opposed to seeing it as just sort of off on the periphery, and that allows us to understand how Gracie and Uhaldi moved to and from his different ranch properties and how it's a giant region, you know, 100, 100 plus miles big um, that he navigates. It's mm-hmm. the same for Clive and Bundy. And I think that we, it was hard for people to understand that, um, especially when there was some disparaging with regard to when he and his family, his father, arrived in Bunkerville. But if you look at the Arizona Strip and the way in which the landscape is fundamentally connected between that part of Arizona, the part of Nevada that is Bunkerville, and then even into southwestern Utah, so the St. George area. And if you know that Gracian's ancestors homesteaded on the Arizona Strip and that their family as generations were born, expanded to the north and to the, the west, then you begin to understand that this is all the same geography. It was easier for them to travel from the Arizona Strip into St. George and Bunkerville than it was for, for a long time for anyone in Bunkerville to go to Las Vegas. Those pathways were the pathways we have now are not the pathway, the same as the pathways they had then. All of them still exist, but we privileged the I-15 corridor instead. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Las Vegas, Bunkerville, Mesquite, and then St. George, that's, that's all in a row. I mean, that's two, two and a half hours drive between all of them. But that's not how his family navigated those spaces. So when Clive and Bundy's father has a chance to buy some a ranch, some real estate, and then have access to the Bunkerville allotment um, to raise cattle. It makes sense for him to move his branch of the family to Bunkerville, and he buys up that land from a relative. So when he talks about having connections to that place for multiple generations, from his perspective, that's explicitly true. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, in that broader landscape. Yeah, in that broader landscape. And even in Bunkerville, because those were relatives. It also depends probably on how um, we choose to identify our family. Is it our broader family or is it just our parents and then our children? It's listening for those cues to see how people describe family, describe connection is important to creating that empathy and to understanding their position culturally and then on the land itself. How about water rights? What about, what's the story there, Liesl, the grazing history? How does that fit into the story? It's really important to understand the connection between grazing allotments that the BLM gives people permission to use, so the ones that are permitted, and then the water rights that ranchers hold in those spaces. In my first book, I talk a lot about how this came to be and how ranchers who had water rights in specific areas were then the ones that were given the permit to graze in those areas when the grazing service was formed in the 18, in the 1930s with the Taylor Grazing Act after 1934. Mm-hmm. And then also um, how the BLM then came to manage these allotments. So it's very difficult to have access to hold a permit for an allotment that you don't also have water rights on. You almost have to have that. I mean, you have to prove that you can maintain a business on the grazing uh, allotment. Yeah, you have to have water to support cattle or any livestock. So, and, and most of the water rights in Nevada and, and really throughout the Great Basin at large, well into Utah, are groundwater rights. So you have to, you the rancher have to dig the well and pump the water up into stock tanks for the livestock to use. So it's your, and that's your investment. Those are your improvements and you're responsible for that in order to keep the water flowing, to keep it being used. You call, or Clive and Bundy uses this phrase, beneficial use, and this idea that when his ancestors first use that water, put it to beneficial use by watering cattle, that's when his rights were created to that place. And that's actually true because of the connection between the water rights and the grazing allotment. So his family got the permit from the BLM because they had those water rights. Mm -hmm. And the, the most interesting thing about his water rights in particular is that they are they're what we call pre-statutory water rights. He was able to demonstrate to the state engineer's office in Nevada that grants those water rights that those wells and that right had been used well before the water law in Nevada came into being. That's what we mean by pre-statutory rights. Mm -hmm. They predate the law. And once that connection is made, you can, those water rights are yours to use unless someone contests them and the state engineer adjudicates them. But that almost never happens. So the most interesting thing about Clive and Bundy's situation with regard to Bunkerville continuing to today is that although 
the Bunkerville allotment is defunct and no longer considered to be a great, no longer um, categorized as a grazing allotment. The BLM has closed it and does not issue permits on it. The cattle are still in that same space because they have access to this water that is still flowing based on Clive and Bundy's water rights. Mm-hmm. And in some respects, as far as understanding Western public lands, yes, this is uh, the public domain, but the his interaction with the water, uh, the, the pre-statutory involvement has some legal relevance. Is that... Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And this is a very difficult situation because according to the BLM, Clive and Bundy's cattle are still in a state of trespass, but they still have access to water. And unless Clive and Bundy's water rights are canceled or taken from him in some way, and then that, that is enforced, then the cattle can still be there unless the BLM chooses to go back in and round it up. Right now, I think the situation is sort of in a, a tense sort of basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everything's standing down. And, and, and Yes, exactly. And, and this, this calls, so this is where, where we begin to understand the nature of the problem. And this is a particular issue with public lands management that, we're going to need to be intentional about talking about and figuring out how we're going to navigate it. There's that fracture, that disconnection between how water rights work and how grazing allotments work. Water rights are governed by the state. Grazing allotments are governed by a federal land management agency. And if the two aren't working in conjunction, then we have this, this problematic fracture. Mm-hmm. And I think in some respects, these stories, the ones that are discussed in the Utah Historical Quarterly article, Gracian, Carey, Cliven, they all speak to this complexity of public uh, uh, public lands. And um, it, it's a big part of our history. Utah is inescapably part of the story of public lands, how they're used, um, uh, some of the philosophies over the years that have changed related to uh, you know, maximum use to aesthetic and recreation use to uh, uh, this 19th century idea of, you know, mining and, well, and continues today. It's not a, just a 19th century idea, but the, the use of the land um, for mining or grazing or uh, uh, forest um, uh, clearing or, you know, for wood product. There's, there's such a complicated story. And I, I think what you're article does, Liesl, is it, it offers a window into kind of, I don't know, uh, decompressing, stopping, uh, I want, maybe the phrase isn't quite right, but cleansing the palate, like, okay, let's just stop all this prejudice and all these notions, and let's just start in a genuine place where we try to understand how all of these players are playing out their actions, why they're doing what they're doing. Um, I, I truly do think that uh, this particular Utah Historical Quarterly um, uh, issue is just packed full of incredible information about Utah and public lands. There's so much more to discuss. I, I 
we probably need to end there. Thank you so much, Liesl, for talking to us on Speak Your Peace. You're so welcome, Brad. Thanks for having me. Any pa- any last word or comment you'd like to make? Anything I, you'd like to say to our listeners as we close out our uh, time together? Well, I would like to, to just reiterate how important this, this issue in the Utah Historical Quarterly is on public lands. I actually happen to know all the other authors that are included, and I use their work and I admire their work so much. Um, I'm particularly thinking of James Gillen and mm-hmm. Laura Watts. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of Thomas Alexander and Matt Pierce, Maria Montoya, Eleanor Mahoney, and everyone else. Um, so if you haven't picked up a copy, I think you really should. It's, it represents, I think, a better step forward for how we think about public lands and how another generation of thinkers and land managers are going to be hopefully operating on our public lands. Perfectly said, Liesl. Thank you so much. Speak Your Peace is a podcast that's recorded and engineered in the studio underground here in Salt Lake City. I thank my sound engineer and post-production editor, Connor Sorensen, from Studio Underground. Special thanks needs to also be offered to Spencer Stokes of Stokes Strategies, who owns Studio Underground. The past is never truly in the past. It's all around us. It informs us. It speaks to both to our shared and to our separate identities. Speak Your Peace is a podcast where writers, historians, archaeologists, Anyone who contributes to Utah history can share their insights and discoveries. If there's one place, one podcast to get your Utah history fix, we hope this is the place. Thank you so much, so much for being with us, Liesl. Grateful for your time and your thoughts shared with us today. Thank you, Brad. We hope you'll tune in again to Speak Your Peace.